Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. She's been written about in the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, and the Quran. Celebrated in music by Handel. Beyonce. And the Dolly Dots. Her story has been told on stage by Barnum and Bailey and on screen by Gina Lollobrigida and Halle Berry. I will sit at the feet of Solomon, like the wise men who flocked to Jerusalem. And perhaps I will learn from his own lips the way to destroy him. She is a holy figure to some, a demon in disguise to others. And Sheba, the wild warrior queen of the battlefields. The voluptuary of the perfumed bath. Mistress of all the arts of love. A wise woman with unparalleled diplomatic skills in certain accounts and a vainglorious seductress in other retellings of her story. Her indelible presence has haunted religious scholars and fueled nationalist and imperial visions in East Africa and Southern Arabia. In the storytelling, you see almost a fusion of imperial power, you see religion. Even her name is a shapeshifter. The Queen of Sheba is Bilkis in Yemen, Makeda in Ethiopia. It's hard to find a woman who has bridged as many cultures and survived as many attempts to destroy her reputation. She saves herself and her people. But this has been completely forgotten by the exegists and the biographers who seem to have been fixated on the sexual dynamics. Author and University of British Columbia journalism professor Kamala Sulaili brings us this documentary about one of antiquity's most mysterious women. We're calling this episode The Many Afterlives of the Queen of Sheba. As someone who was born in Aden to a Yemeni family, I grew up hearing about the Queen of Sheba. She was consistently upheld as a powerful woman from our homeland's ancient past. She represented civilization, power, wealth beyond compare, many things that contemporary Yemen lacked. She appears in the Quran, which made her real, divine, and beyond questioning. I can't say that I've thought much about her over the decades, but that all changed about five years ago. I always go back to the fact that Yemen was once ruled by queens. That's my niece, Yusra, a journalist and TV producer based in Sana'a, the capital of Yemen. In 2018, she was interviewed by New York Magazine about life as a woman in a war zone. Yemen used to be ruled by queens, she told the reporter. 
I hope one day this country goes back to normal and we lead. It's interesting that she was once ruling this country while this particular moment we don't have our 100% freedom as women. Yusra's vision of the Queen of Sheba as a powerful feminist icon stayed with me because today she's often remembered as a beauty icon instead. Take this wildly anachronistic commercial where the Queen of Sheba, here known as Bilkis, is used to advertise a beauty clinic in Sana'a. Egyptian Queen Nefertiti takes a selfie, then calls the Queen of Sheba in a state of panic. I'm ruined, she cries. My body is sagging, my face is wrinkled, and I'm becoming hairy. Hello? Belis, alhaini! Nefertiti, khay! Calm down, Bilkis says. Come to Sana'a and everything will be fine. Have you seen that commercial that talks about Bilkis? Have you seen it? What do you think of it? This is Yusra and her friends talking about the images of the Queen of Sheba in popular Arabic culture. This was my first issue with the coalition. The fact that Belize was was a political leader. But with all women political leaders, it's always about the looks. How she wore her clothes, uh, who fell in love with her. The general conception of these people is never what they did as a political leaders. Mm. I think most of the stories that we've heard is also the same thing with the Suleiman. And yeah, the, that he fell in love yeah, with yeah. her. And that, that's yes. what I was going to say. Maybe it's like that with women, whatever they are, and whatever field they're walking in. Beauty is still there. and The issue is, at, at times, it's it's the only thing that is shown. There was two stories in, in Quran about political leaders. One was a negative one. It was about Pharaoh, mm-hmm. the Pharaoh, the Egyptian Pharaoh. The other one was Bilqis. Yeah. The positive ones. The and positive it, said, ones. it said very clearly that she she ruled with uh, democracy. Yeah. So this was th- this is very interesting. What interested me more than the scholars were ordinary, quote-unquote, of course, women who seemed to have, in fact, taken her role as a leading guide for themselves. My name is Shahla Hayri, and I'm a professor of anthropology at Boston University. I was born in Iran and raised in Tehran until I finished high school, and then I came to Boston. So I've lived here ever since then, although I um, do visit Tehran and Iran every time that I get a chance. The first woman who seriously drew my attention to her was a woman in her veil in Iran, whom I was interviewing for a video documentary I was making on some Iranian women who had nominated themselves as presidential candidates in 2001. The first thing she told me, she said, look, we have in the Quran a woman, the Queen of Sheba, who ruled her country and her people. Of course, that's important for us. She assumed legitimacy for herself on the basis of what's in the Quran. 
I wanted to understand how the story of the Queen of Sheba has morphed over the years, how the same figure who inspires women in Iran and Yemen has also been recast as a demonic seductress. So I returned to the earliest accounts of her life in the Hebrew Bible and the Quran. Both accounts revolve around her meeting with Solomon, son of David and king of the Israelites, in Jerusalem sometime roughly between 900 and 1000 BC. The Hebrew Bible rendition is the oldest. It's also the briefest. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard riddles. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold, and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. What does the Hebrew Bible, I'm thinking particularly the Book of Kings and Chronicles, actually tell us about the encounter between King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba? What do we know, what don't we know, just from those two texts? What we are told is that the Queen of Sheba heard reports about Solomon and came of her own initiative to see him for herself and to test him with hard riddles. Hidot is the term in Hebrew. My name is Dr. Jillian Stinchcomb, and I am a researcher in biblical studies and Jewish studies. My dissertation project was a reception history of the Queen of Sheba, and I'm currently working on a book that looks at the Queen of Sheba between the Bible and the Cavernagast. And currently, I'm a researcher at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. I would say that the the sort of equality of their stature is indicated by the fact that she comes to test him with hard riddles. To me, that's really crucial because you don't you don't test someone who's superior to you, right? I mean, that's uh, that's not how testing really works. I mean, I guess maybe if you have a toddler, you might say that they test you all the time, but <laughs> so uh, but the fact that she comes to test him in order to see him and to really hear if the reports are true. She asked him all these questions. He answered her forthrightly. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. And then we are told that she gives him these sort of effusive blessings. Not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Gives him a a host of gifts, and the Bible is really interested in telling us that she was sort of remarkably wealthy. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. So what does her wealth, does her wealth tell us anything about her political power? That's a good question because money talks, right? Um, You know, presumably her wealth does give her political power. I would say that her wealth is probably why her function as an external witness to Solomon's greatness matters so much. 
That is the Queen of Sheba's true function in the Hebrew Bible. The fact that such a wealthy monarch is so impressed with Solomon, who at this point in history was relatively unknown, means the reader should be impressed with him too. What we are not told is her name, what she looks like, anything about the land of Sheba, political governance, how it came to be ruled by a queen, nothing along those lines. The Queen of Sheba also goes unnamed in the Quran. There are several women mentioned in the Quran, but none has been named except for Mary, mother of Jesus. All other women, about 20, 23 of them who have been mentioned in the Quran, they are contextualized within the kinship and marriage relations. They're identified as the wife of so-and-so, daughter of so-and-so, mother of so-and-so. The only woman who's also unnamed but has been identified is the queen of Shiva by her position. That's who she was. She was a Malaka, a queen, and that is very important. And God had given her everything, 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 including a mighty throne. And what is important is the word used for her mighty throne is exactly the same word that is used for God's celestial throne, Asha Azim. Inni wajadtu amra'atan tamlukuhum. So she has that, meaning that she's legitimately a leader, right? And a powerful one at that, which seems to throw off Solomon, who commanded the natural and supernatural worlds like no other. According to the Quran, King Solomon had the ability to communicate with all animals, from ants on the ground to birds in the sky. One day, he notices one of his birds is missing, and he threatens to punish it severely. When he asks the bird where it was, the bird replies that he's just flown back from the land of Sheba, a land ruled by a heretical queen with a magnificent throne. I found her and her people prostrating to the sun instead of Allah. For Satan has made their deeds appealing to them, hindering them from the right way and leaving them unguided. Solomon said... We will see whether you are telling the truth or lying. Go with this letter of mine and deliver it to them. Then stand aside and see how they will respond. It's that response that sets the Queen of Sheba in a league of her own. As wise as she is, she realizes that this is a very important letter. And she realizes that the threat in that letter, which says, actually, the letter says, come, submit, or be destroyed. In the name of Allah, the most compassionate, most merciful, do not be arrogant with me, but come to me, fully submitting to Allah. So she realizes that she has to find out a way of dealing with that because the threat is very real. So she consults her advisors, who happen to be only men. Oh, chiefs, advise me in this matter of mine, for I would never make any decision without you. And it's amazing what they say. They say, look, we are men of war. We are willing to follow your order. Tell us what to do, and we wage battle royal on your behalf. She says, no. When kings attack a village, a place, they subject the people to misery. When kings invade a land... They ruin it and debase its nobles. That is what was amazing to me, 
as I read the story over and over and over again and read the stories of the exegetes, the biographers, the storytellers, I was dumbfounded of how smart, how caring, how wise she was and how little attention by the exegetes, by the biographers have been paid to that part of her uh, uh, actions, her leadership, which it is highlighted in the Quran. She was a wise leader and she saved her people from unnecessary violence and destruction, right? She says, no, I am not going to allow that happen to my people. But I will certainly send him a gift and see what response my envoys will return with. King Solomon rejects her gift on the grounds that what God has granted him is far greater than anything the queen can give him. He sends the envoy back with a warning that he will mobilize his forces against the land of Sheba. So she goes on an act of diplomacy herself. Not only does King Solomon summon the Queen of Sheba to his court, he also arranges for her mighty throne to be brought to him in a blink of an eye. Then Solomon plays a little trick on her. He paves the hall to his palace with glass. When she saw the hall, she thought it was a body of water, so she bared her leg. Only to realize that this is not water, but glass. Realizing her mistake in terms of understanding one reality for the other, so she says, God, I have wronged myself, and I submit to God of Solomon. Not to Solomon, but to God of Solomon. At last she declared, My Lord, I have certainly wronged my soul. Now I fully submit myself, along with Solomon, to Allah, the Lord of all worlds. Yes, we all surrender to God. It doesn't mean that she's been completely dominated by Solomon. And from then on, her individuality, her psychology, her very being is being controlled by Solomon. No, I don't think that's the case. She surrenders just like we surrender to God, to our faith, not submit in a more physical, sexual sense. Whether there is any of that in the Quran, you know, it's really not clear. I mean, other than the fact that we have a man and a woman. Now, they automatically assume there's got to be a sexual dynamics there. And then they go on and on and on with that. The relationship between the Queen of Sheba and Solomon has become central to her mythology and cultural footprint. She exists in relation to the king. In the Hebrew Bible, there's a line about King Solomon meeting all the queen's desires. King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for. But that can be a reference to material or spiritual needs. Rather than forming a relationship with him, she exits the text. Then she left and returned with her retinue to her own country. She sort of disappears into the unknown at the end of this, right? We don't see her ever again. So there are what I would call loud silences around this figure who's fascinating for coming and meeting Solomon as a fellow monarch, but as a woman in all of these weird ways. 
And by presenting these narratives with these loud silences around them, they're sort of breathing room for exegetes and interpreters to sort of project their own creativity and to have space to think with this figure. And so when they are remembering her or reimagining her or reformulating her, there's not too many constricting bounds, and they can take it in in a variety of directions, which is precisely what we see uh, in the post-Quranic period. And so the floodgates open to the era of the exegetes, the interpreters of passages in holy texts like the Bible or the Quran. It is here that we begin to see the Queen of Sheba used as a vehicle for other people's ideas about gender and the natural order. For her male biographers, she becomes a transgressive figure whose body is vetted and controlled and whose life is modified to make room for male power. The wildest retelling of the queen's encounter with King Solomon from the Jewish tradition appears in the Targum Sheni to the Book of Esther, the second Aramaic translation of the Book of Esther. It was most likely written in the late 7th or early 8th century. One time, when King Solomon was under the influence of too much wine, he issued invitations to all the kings of the East and the West. It shares some details with the Quranic narrative, the missing bird, the sun-worshipping queen, and a threatening letter from Solomon. Know that the beasts of the field are my generals, the birds in the sky are my riders, and the demons, spirits, and liliths are my contingent, who will strangle you in your beds. The beasts will slay you in the fields, and the birds will eat your flesh. But in this version, when the queen arrives at Solomon's court, the glass pathway is a ruse. It's a trick to reveal whether or not she has hairy legs. Solomon's response is immediate and harsh. You're a beautiful woman, but hairiness is for men. You look absolutely disgraceful. In some versions, the Queen of Sheba's legs aren't just hairy. They're the legs of a donkey. Let's just talk a little bit about the whole idea of her having the legs of a donkey, because... It's, it's, it's a bizarre intersection between demonology on one level and gender and what's what's expected of women. But also, you you have the you have the kind of the the, the animalistic part of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. So Solomon had been associated with female demons who had hair or donkey legs hidden underneath their skirts since probably the fourth century CE, where there's a text called the Testament of Solomon that describes Solomon interacting with one such demon. It's not until we get to the writings of Al-Tabari, who is a Muslim polymath, historian, exegete, wrote exegetical literature as well. He records traditions that say that maybe the Queen of Sheba was someone, was a, was a woman who had donkey legs underneath her skirts. She's ruling uh, her country. She has all these men who are following her. She has the people who are very satisfied with her. Everything, everything. So nobody is dissatisfied with her. Now, for the exegetes, storytellers, biographers to understand that and then to make that, to allow that to be propagated is a big deal. They're not going to do that. Yet at the same time, because it is revelations to Prophet Muhammad, revelations are words of God. They had to deal with it one way or another. By the time Muslim scholar Ahmed bin Muhammad al-Talabi takes hold of the story in the 11th century in his classic tafsir or interpretation of the Quran, the Queen of Sheba, now known as Bilqis, 
acquires supernatural lineage as the daughter of a Yemeni king and a jinn. In Arabic mythology, the jinn are powerful spirits capable of taking on different shapes and have the free will to be good or evil. Bilkis's father was a king possessing great influence. Ruler of all the Yemen, he would proclaim to the provincial dynasts, there is not one among you who is my equal. As he refused to marry among their people, they paired him off to a woman of the jinn called Rehana bint al-Shukra. Her mother was, was a jinn princess, and then there's a story there. And then Ibn Arabi says, no, well, maybe it was her father who was a jinn. Whatever that was, it is to say that she's not a human. She's neither a man nor a woman. Her legs are hairy, symbolic of her masculine characteristics. Her mother was a jinn or her father was a jinn. So the jinns helped her to be powerful in one way or another. So to say that she's really outside of patriarchal order of gender relations. In some ways, this goes back to the earliest portrayals in the Hebrew Bible, where she sort of comes from beyond the edge of the map, so to speak. In these later sources where she is presented as this sort of frightening female monarch as opposed to a a sort of positive female monarch, it seems really clear that it's precisely the mixture of the known and the unknown that she embodies really strongly. That is one of the things that is so intimidating or maybe off-putting or viewed negatively by these, these later figures. Because the thing about monsters, right, is monsters are not totally opposite to anything we can know. Maybe in sort of Lovecraft's horror or Lovecraftian horror, where the, you know, the absolute other emerges into reality and it's sort of brain-breaking. But by and far, with monsters, monsters are not absolute other. They're right on the edge of the familiar and the unfamiliar. And that's what makes them so intriguing to people, why some people, you know, find monsters sexy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's that liminality of being on the edge of the known and the unknown that makes monsters such powerful figures. And that's precisely what the Queen of Sheba sort of always has been, even when she wasn't portrayed as monstrous. The Queen of Sheba's hairy legs symbolize a breakaway from the natural order. But Solomon finds a way to bring her back to it. In some renditions, he offers her a hair removal cream before he sleeps with her. The king immediately perceived her to be exceedingly beautiful. As she was unmarried, he spoke of laying with her. But when he heard that she was the daughter of a jinn and thus had hairy legs, he said, What shall I do? This is from the Yemenite tale of Sadia ben Joseph from the 18th century. He sent her cosmetics and a depilatory, which she used in making herself ready. She came to him, and he lay with her. On Ideas, you've been listening to The Many Afterlives of the Queen of Sheba. We're a podcast and a broadcast, heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. 
They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. The Queen of Sheba has worn many faces. She's been portrayed as a powerful and benevolent ruler, a seductress, and as an otherworldly donkey-legged creature. The early stories about her are thin on details. She comes from beyond the edge of the map, a figure whose origins are shrouded in mystery. She's portrayed as a monster, a half-demon, a half-jinn, sort of what-have-you, um, sort of hidden in plain sight, who comes into view. And by working on this sort of simultaneously known but unknowable register, I think that is one of the factors alongside the silence of the scriptural accounts that makes her so potent for people to think with. Throughout history, people have used the story of the Queen of Sheba as a vehicle to express other ideas. Ideas about gender and power, but also about empire and nation. That's most visible in a revered 14th century text from Ethiopia called the Kibernegast. It's oftentimes called the National Epic of Ethiopia. And this comes to legitimize then the Solomonic dynasty, which continues until 1974. And so this claim to religious legitimacy, uh, this claim to political legitimacy through and mediated through the story of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, offers a sort of religious justification and political justification for power. Ideas contributor Kamala Sulaili brings us this documentary about the many lives and afterlives of the Queen of Sheba. And the queen said unto her subjects, Ye who are my people, listen to my words, for I desire wisdom, and my heart seeketh to find understanding. The Kabernegast is the origin story for a family, a dynasty, and a nation. And as an origin story, it diverges from the Hebrew Bible and the Quran in several crucial ways. Here, the Queen of Sheba is not an exotic other from a faraway land. She's the black queen of a black kingdom, a wise and gracious leader who identifies with her people. It's not the first text to portray her as an African queen, but it's the longest and most significant. The text foregrounds her wisdom, as well as her relationship with Solomon. I am smitten with the love of wisdom, for wisdom is far better than treasures of gold and silver, and wisdom is the best of everything that hath been created on the earth. You see this very intelligent lady who is informed about the wisdom of Solomon, not that his country is rich or he's very powerful, but how he, he's able to govern with intelligence, or as they say, which is equivalent to wisdom, but much, much more than, than, than wisdom. My name is Eob Derilo. Uh, I'm currently working at the British Library as a reference specialist in the reading room of Africa and Asian studies. I was previously the curator for the Ethiopic collection, and I'm also currently completing my uh, PhD at the School of Oriental and African Studies, where I'm focusing on the history of Ethiopian magic. 
and the text reads listen to my story i'm searching for knowledge and i have fallen in love with wisdom it's as if a bee has stung her it is like seeking wisdom and she says i am also tied by the rope of wisdom there's this amazing dialogue she has and she discusses with him and she explains her interest in wanting to learn about his religion a very philosophical very thinking person makeda i look upon thee and i see that thy wisdom is immeasurable and thine understanding inexhaustible and that it is like unto a lamp in the darkness solomon replies wisdom and understanding spring from thee thyself as for me i only possess them in the measure in which the god of israel hath given them to me because i asked and entreated them from him and thou although thou dost not know the god of israel hast this wisdom which thou hast made to grow in thy heart this mutual admiration society takes a strange turn shortly after she promised solomon she would take nothing from his house without explicit permission from him and then he fed her spicy food but didn't give her water and so when she woke up in the middle of the night to get a drink of water uh he says you know you took something from my house without my asking and that means that i can request something from you and so we request a sexual relationship and the text actually describes this sort of debate between the two of them as being very philosophical because she asks you know it's just water and he says what more wealth is there what's more important than water we can look askance at the questions of consent raised by this issue but the text views it positively because she becomes pregnant and gives birth to her son Menelik the 1st after she comes home to Ethiopia and Menelik the 1st is the first ruler of the Solomonic house so I, I, this is the reading where i do not feel comfortable because uh, you know he, he does seduce her um but obviously for the author there is an important reason for this because you know she's going to give birth to to the the, the monarchy the way that the kebernegist sort of portrays this is that it was sort of meant to happen there was a purpose for minilik being born much more important than that you know there's going to be this powerful story that's about to unfold a powerful story that will unfold without the queen of sheba after she gives birth of minilik it stops there we don't hear any more about her because for the text i think whoever was writing the kebernegist the most important thing here was that she's the vehicle to carry minilik and not only does she disappear from the text in fact she steps aside for her son to take the throne so you see almost immediately a sidelining of of female power my name is sophia adid i am a historian and an assistant professor of history and african studies at the university of toronto and i work on the history of the horn of africa and really from then on you see almost a, a, a chronology of male emperors from the beginning the kebernegist had an important political purpose to position the house of solomon as the natural rulers of the ethiopian empire 
which continues until 1974 with the overthrow of the Emperor Haile Selassie in the Ethiopian Revolution. As you've heard in the world at six, the end has finally come for Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia. After months of humiliation, with his powers being stripped from him by the army command, the old man is deposed. The whole thing came to a head last night with an ultimatum from the army, either bring back to Ethiopia the millions of dollars you've salted away in Europe or get out. The outcome we now know. To understand this, we do need to go a little bit further to an earlier civilization, the kingdom of Aksum. So Aksum emerges as a really important state in the Horn of Africa, occupying territories of present-day Eritrea, Ethiopia, and at various times in its history also expanding across the Red Sea to parts of Yemen, southern Arabia. And so Aksum also notably becomes Christian in the 4th century under a king named Izana. And so there's a period of interruption that takes place. So Aksum begins to decline really with the rise of Islam in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Around the 8th, 9th century, you start to see a significant decline, and it's replaced by another, another dynasty known as the Zagwe. We don't know much about the Zagwe dynasty, but the Solomonic dynasty came afterwards and were very interested in justifying their rule as something that was rooted in the biblical past. Essentially, we're not a new, we're not a new dynasty. We have a very, very ancient history. And so really the story of the Queen of Sheba emerges with the restoration in a sense, or at least a claim to restoration that's brought on in the 13th century by a king named Yehuna Amlak. And Yehuna Amlak claims descent from the kings of Aksum. And in doing so, he claims the story of the Queen of Sheba and the King Solomon. They literally count from the Queen of Sheba. And there is a long list of kings. There is that continuous tradition right to Emperor Haile Selassie. There's also an important tradition that has spread beyond the borders of Ethiopia. This is a song called Makeda by the French band Les Nubians. Makeda was queen, beautiful and powerful, they sing. Solomon dreamed of her black skin. The song references the Queen of Sheba's Ethiopian name while turning her into a transnational icon of black female power. The Queen of Sheba lives in me, they sing. Ethiopia was famously known across the African diaspora as the unconquered kingdom. And so this national epic of Ethiopia, this story that told the Kebernegas literally means the glory of the kings. So this story that told the glory of the kings of the unconquered kingdom of Africa was very, very important for many African diasporic movements. Certainly for peoples of the African diaspora who were able to witness, for instance, Emperor Menelik II uh, defeat, successfully repel Italian colonization. 
Now, Ethiopia, one of the only two countries on the continent that were never colonized, celebrated 121 years of defeating the Italians. Adwa, the story of Africans singing to their own freedom, played out against a background of almost unrelenting European colonial expansion. Ethiopia and Liberia were the only two African countries that were never colonized. Immediately you see a sort of twinning, you know, this, this idea that Ethiopia is in fact this free black state, Ethiopia is a place of power, and relating this to biblical verses, for instance, in, in, in Psalms, speaking of Ethiopia raising its hands unto God. So you see that kind of understanding emerging at a time where uh, the colonization of Africa is taking place. Globally, you see an intensification of anti-Black racism, the rise of Jim Crow in the United States. And so in that context, you see, again, this appeal to biblical symbols that the African diaspora associates with Black power, in this case, also the Queen of Sheba. And these are all associated with, again, uh, Black sovereignty, essentially, or Black power. Yet, the way the story of the Queen of Sheba has been used to legitimize the role of the Solomonic dynasty has a contested history for other African nations in the region, especially those bordering Ethiopia. In that 19th century moment, where you see the consolidation of the Ethiopian state, its centralization and expansion, in this moment where Africa is also subject to colonial conquest. And so Ethiopia, by the turn of the 20th century, under Menelik II, he essentially doubles Ethiopia in size through a process of colonial conquest. And so this claim to religious legitimacy, uh, this claim to political legitimacy through and mediated through the story of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, offers a sort of religious justification and political justification for conquest and for control and for power. It's almost like a manifest destiny. It claims Ethiopia as the real site of Christianity, the real inheritors of Christian tradition, the owners of the Ark of the Covenant. And so to this day, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church believes that they possess the original Ark of the Covenant. So in this text, you do have you know, a claim to really Ethiopia being the real Zion, right? Ethiopia being the real homeland, Ethiopia being and Ethiopians being the true chosen people. Yemenis, on the other hand, believe Maharam Belkis, or the Shrine of Belkis, in the province of Maghreb, to be her final resting place and the true seat of her kingdom. In the late 1990s, an international expedition began excavating the site to reveal one of the oldest religious shrines of the ancient world. I think last year I was in, uh, in Belgis' throne. Mm -hmm. And the feeling you get there is very majestic. It's, mm -hmm. not, it's, not, it's not normal. Mm -hmm. When you get there, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm Yemeni and I feel like this is where... This iconic woman ruled strong. That's why I was feeling like that. When I met a young man from Arab at a Yemen-related event in Paris last year, I told him about this documentary and questioned the legitimacy of his home province's claim. 
he took it as an insult. For many people in Marib, and by extension Yemen, she's their queen, and they're not going to share her with other nations. But for Dr. Adib, the nationalist tug of war between Yemen and Ethiopia about who can truly claim the Queen of Sheba misses the point. I mean, really, these places are just so linked. And at its narrowest point, I mean, we're talking about a distance of just over 30 kilometers, right? The Bab al-Mendeb. You can see you can see Yemen from Djibouti. <laughs> you can swim. You can swim. <laughs> you can swim. You can swim. So this is really, I mean, this is even in the ancient world. I mean, it's not a long journey. The Red Sea has been, and really not only the Red Sea, the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aden, the Western Indian Ocean, this whole area has been an important site of global commerce, of trade, really for millennia. The Periplus of the Erythrian Sea, a document from the Roman times, the first century AD, written by a Greek writer, an Egyptian Greek. This is a document that describes in a lot of detail the port cities, trade routes, uh, commodities available to the Romans at the time. And in this document, actually, they describe Sheba, they describe Saba, they describe Himyar, all of these uh, states in what's modern-day Yemen. They also describe Aksum and the port city of Adulis in present-day Eritrea as being really important zones, as well as port cities along the Somali coast. But not only is there trade and commerce taking place kind of in this region as a whole and between the Horn of Africa and uh, Southern Arabia, but you also have a migration of people, you have the exchange of ideas. And of course, importantly, these ideas include religious beliefs. And so, you know, Islam and Christianity have a very important role in this zone as well, as well as pre-Islamic and pre-Christian religious beliefs. And so Christianity arrives in the Horn of Africa by way of the Red Sea. Importantly, Islam also arrives in the Horn of Africa by way of the Red Sea. And so I think going back to this area is really a shared zone, a shared space of exchange, um, I, I think resists trying to nationalize a particular story, right? I think the Queen of Sheba really exemplifies, I think, the transnational nature of this space, the fact that this is a world that really predates borders. And so bordering the history, I think, of the Queen of Sheba to say it's Yemeni or Ethiopian, I think it's it's very difficult to do. Of course, we also have Nubia, which, again, it's possible she ruled as far as that. There's a historical link between all these nations. Um, and I think, if anything, that should bring these people together, <laughs> that historically, once upon a time, they were very powerful. So I, I think, yeah, I'd love to say, obviously, for me, she's 100% Ethiopian, but if she's Yemeni, I'm, I'm happy because we love Yemen. <laughs> <laughs> and we love Ethiopia and Yemen. But, to this day, there's no conclusive archaeological evidence of the Queen of Sheba's existence in Yemen, Ethiopia, or anywhere else. So, to the questions of human or jinn, wise woman or temptress, we may add a third, more fundamental one. Real or not? Well, I mean, personally, I think that's immaterial. The fact that we do not have any physical evidence of her having ever lived. But just think, 
over 3,000 years, she has existed. She has been, her life has been highlighted by many people only to knock her down and say that she didn't exist or she's not good. Just think how powerful that personality must have been in the history of, you know, all our, our cultures, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and, and in some African countries, of course, as well. So I think to search for physical evidence is, doesn't take us anywhere. So suppose that we find, a, you know, a bone and we, <laughs> how do we know? I mean, can we identify her DNA? Her DNA is in our very culture. I actually love that because we have no archaeological evidence for the Queen of Sheba, it kind of invites us to ask, you know, what do you mean by the real Queen of Sheba, right? I'll also say it's not that unusual. I mean, coming from biblical studies, we actually have no contemporaneous evidence of Solomon either. (laughs) We also have no contemporaneous evidence of, of David, for that matter, or a lot of biblical history. So, you know, on the one hand, no, I don't think it matters because I see evidence every day of how people engage with biblical f- figures from the Bible, biblical texts, the biblical past, uh, and the effects of those figures is very real and very much happens in the sort of day-to-day. And I would argue, actually, that the sort of heterogeneity, the richness of the variety of people who identify with the Queen of Sheba is enabled, actually, by that sort of archaeological silence. Last year or a year or so ago, I wrote a paper a, a sort of tongue-in-cheek paper in which I uh, called it, what if the Queen of Sheba could visit Iran? My uh, wish or my uh, imagination was that I was a guide to the Queen of Sheba, both of us riding on her uh, magnificent throne and going from one uh, campsite or one headquarter to another. Well, that was just a fantasy on my part. But the woman's demand is no longer a fantasy. Zan, Zindagi, Azadi. Woman, life, freedom. And before long, women across Iran shed their mandatory hijabs in defiance. This time, many people believed things could be different. Who do you see as the true inheritors of the Queen of Sheba's legacy today? Reflecting on what is happening in Iran, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, and across the Muslim world, I would say the Queen of Sheba are all these women. We do not need to have one single queen. We're far too many right now. And all these women, you know, women who just are just saying that enough is enough. I need to be in charge of some aspects of my life. And look at what men have done all over the world. I'm sorry. (laughs) Come on. With due respect. I I agree. No argument here. No argument here. (laughs) But I think the Queen of Sheba is a composite figure, character, all of us. All these women, young women in Iran, I'm just, you know, floored when I see what they are doing. In Afghanistan, my goodness, in Yemen, of course, you know, of course in Yemen, and your wonderful niece um, who can represent this amazing figure, and we need to make her more known. Because we have this this idea that we have, we once was ruled by a queen, so we want to, to, uh, to regain this legacy somehow. Yemeni women know that the Queen of Sheba, whether an idea 
or a real person is not an aberration in the country's history. There's also the woman known as the Little Queen of Sheba, Queen Arwa, who ruled for 71 years as Queen Regent, Queen Consort, and outright Queen in the 11th and 12th century. Like her predecessor, she was a politically astute leader who tried to avoid bloodshed. She valiantly preserved her throne from warring tribes and the meddling of the Fatimite Caliphate in Cairo. She remains the only woman in Islamic history to hold both political and religious mandates as a leader. This whole concept gives me hope. Mm. Because now we're at a very, very, very low time for women, especially in, in Yemen. And uh, I, I was sitting with an activist, a lawyer. She's actually a bit older. And she said, my grandchild can't do the things that I, I used, used to do. To. Mm-hmm. It means that we're going, going back. We're going, yeah, back. Mm-hmm. We're going back. She said, I have to fight for things, for simple things, for my grandchild that I did not, that I thought that we've made this battle. Mm-hmm. We're done with this battle. We're done with the battle of wearing specific things. We're done with the battle of women political participation. But now I, there is uh, there is nothing. But... The whole concept of Queen Bilgis, Queen of Sheba or uh, Arwa, gives me always hope that this time will end. These groups, these uh, religious ideologists group will end and the culture, the history will continue. Yeah, yeah. Lasted for yeah, every, every, every time it's not going to end now. Yeah, every timeline has an ups and downs, and they think we are in the lowest of the lowest now. Mm-hmm. But uh, anything that gives me hope is seeing that long time ago there was a, a, a down, and people got better somehow. There is there is always hope when it when it comes to a war that you think it will end. Nothing will be lasting forever, sure. and I'm, I'm sure that women will be part of that. I hope so. So I'm thinking that um, the many, many powerful women, determined women, smart women, intelligent women who are now, you know, can easily assume the position of leadership and lead Muslim societies, which they really need some kind of (laughs) queen of Sheba to take them out of the rot they're in right now. You were listening to The Many Afterlives of the Queen of Sheba by Ideas contributor Kamala Suleili and producer Pauline Holdsworth. Special thanks to Yusra Ishaq, Jacob Lasner, Wendy Laura Belcher, and Matthew Lazen Ryder. Readings by Eliza Siegel, Adrian Harewood, and Matthew Lazen Ryder. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast. If you like the episode you just heard, check out our podcast feed's vast archives, where you can find more than 300 of our past episodes. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Web producer, Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.